0: Well, church, I know I've said it for three weeks now, but I'll say it again because I mean it. It's good to be back with you. It's good to be able to be with you, to be able to turn in the word together, to be able to sing together, to be able to fellowship together, to be in community group this last week. we were Our community group was back and meeting and to spend time there. It's good to be together with the church this morning. Now, we are continuing a sermon series in the book of Acts, entitled Witnesses, that actually concluded at the beginning of the summer. So how do you do that? How do you continue a sermon series that concluded? Well, we finished our, our time walking through each section and passage of Acts, but we were left with a few questions and some questions that we said that we would come back to. This morning, we come back to a question that centers upon the work of the Holy Spirit, And so this morning, there are two passages that I call to mind and remember and that really guide and formulate a question for me. This morning, I remember Jesus' words in John 3.5. In John 3.5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Friends, that means for me that there is something That we must understand. There's something that we must know. There's something that we must experience. There is a reality to being born of water and the Spirit that is necessary in order to enter the kingdom of God. John the Baptist. He also says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm thinking, what does this mean? That between Jesus and and John the Baptist, it seems right that we would expect that there is a work of God's grace that we are to look for, and, and that's necessary for the hope of salvation to be brought into that great kingdom of God where he is king, and we are more than his subjects. Oh, we're children and heirs in that kingdom. You see, that's good news, and it seems like there is some work of the Spirit that we ought to expect that is necessary for entrance into that kingdom. And so the in the book of Acts is where we see so much of the initial fulfillment both of Jesus' words and John the Baptist's words. So here's what we're going to do this morning. In a few moments we're going to turn to a number of places in the scriptures. But one of the things that we know is that the Holy Spirit works among the people of God to give us understanding of his word. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this morning we seek you, we pray to you. We have confidence as we do so because you've told us to pray, you've taught us to pray, you've said that you would be with us as we pray, you've said that you would do a work in the midst of our prayer by your Spirit to to make it more effective than even what our words could say, give us understanding and recall and hope and confidence and a remembering of our salvation. Lord, we pray that all of these things would take place as we turn to your word. I pray that your, your word would remain our authority this morning. And where we have questions, it would simply drive us further and further in dependence upon you and the grace that you have given. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. We pray that you would work in our midst this morning and, and particularly in the midst of this preacher. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. This morning, I want to begin by looking at the unique work of the Spirit among the peoples in Acts. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that uh, my kids seem to have a problem with my use of the word peoples, plural. They say, isn't the word people plural already? And I say, yes, it is. But when you have a bunch of people and another bunch of people, what do you have? You have peoples. All right. You have people groups, you have these peoples and, and cultures and languages and, that are formed that we see in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God working among these variety of peoples. We're going to look at four passages this morning. I would really invite you to write them down. They're going to be on the screen behind me, the, the, not the whole text, so you're going to have to turn to it. I hope that you will with me. But make note of what the texts are, so you can go back to them later. I believe that the Scripture is sufficient for the people of God for training together, and that we would even hear, look back as we're studying together. We're going to begin in Acts chapter two, verses one through four. Some of you are like, "I knew, I know that's where he was going." Kind of have to start here. Acts chapter two, verses one through four. We see a people in Jerusalem, and here's what takes place when the day of pentecost arrived they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like the mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance that's the work of the spirit very Evident and obvious and very public there in Acts chapter 2. Then we're going to go to our next little passage, just a few chapters later, in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, you see, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. We're in Samaria. Samaria. They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Here we have again this, this great, very public, amazing, miraculous filling of the Holy Spirit. And then just a few chapters later, Acts chapter 10. That's chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still saying these things, and here he's saying these things, that is, the, the word of the gospel to Gentiles. We're not in Jerusalem. We're not in Samaria. We're in Gentile country now. And while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And then, just a few more chapters later, in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verses 4 through 7. Here we have a very different sort of group of people. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is, Jesus On hearing this, they, that is, this group of people who are disciples of John the Baptist, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. In each of these accounts, we have a record of a truly extraordinary moment in redemption history. At each of these moments, something entirely unexpected takes place. Unexpected right there for the people who were proclaiming and and believing and experiencing this great work of God in their midst. I want to go back and just remember each one of them. Maybe even consider some of the context. Back in Acts chapter 2, you recall. Acts chapter 2. Following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Spirit moves among, there were 120 disciples. They were in an upper room. They were waiting in patient, prayerful, and Scripture-searching anticipation for what would come next. And that Holy Spirit met them in that place of anticipation to send them into the streets to bear witness to the gospel among the Jews that had gathered in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost from every corner of the world. All of the nations had gathered, the scriptures say. Jews had gathered and worshipped like this for centuries. They would gathered there for Pentecost and to celebrate at the temple, that's not new. That's not particularly extraordinary. It's beautiful, but it's not unexpected. But never before had the gathered been interrupted in this way by news of a resurrected and redeeming Messiah. It is an extraordinary thing that the Holy Spirit broke into the upper room, sent them out of the upper room with word of the gospel. And if you look at Acts chapter 2, what reigns there is the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of the lost, not by tongues of fire, but by what those tongues enabled the people to say. That is the gospel. And the call was that they would repent and believe that gospel. Many were added to their number that day. The Spirit's work is that of bearing irrefutable witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ is redemption for all who believe. Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, Philip has gone to Samaria and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ among the Samaritan people. Now, let's be clear, as we may not catch this or really understand how significant this is. Samaria is the land of the former northern kingdom of Israel. And that land had been cut off from worship at the temple and and utterly full of idolatry and syncretistic paganism since shortly after the death of King Solomon, 1,000 years before this event in Acts chapter 8. This is not a place for the great worship of God. This is a place filled with idolatry. And so when Philip goes there to proclaim the gospel, what's he expecting to find? And what's the, what are those who are in Jerusalem expecting to hear about what takes place there? Well, when the people of the city of Samaria, that's so filled with unclean spirits and sin, the passage tells us, they believed the gospel and we're told that there was much joy in the city. Friends, that's unexpected. That idolaters would believe in the gospel. So who would believe that far-fetched account? Yeah, right, they believe those idolatrous non-people who re- reject the temple and have walked in idolatry since the days of following King Solomon. Yeah, right. Can even Samaritans be saved? And if they are, surely they aren't saved the same way we faithful worshipers at the temple are saved. But the apostles laid their hands on them, and the Holy Spirit bore irrefutable witness that these Samaritans are redeemed by the same gospel, and they receive the same Spirit. Acts chapter 10. Over in Acts chapter 10, Peter is shocked. All right. Peter, the gospel proclaimer, is shocked by what takes place. When God himself suggests that Gentiles could also be redeemed and cleansed by the gospel. Gentiles? I mean, Samaritans? I guess so. Maybe. But Gentiles? When he finally comes to understand that God shows no partiality, any question he might have had about the salvation of the Gentiles was Utterly erased when the Holy Spirit bore witness to their redemption and inclusion into the kingdom of God by pouring himself out upon the people who became believers in Cornelius' household. And Peter is flabbergasted. His, his comment is this. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? And here's his words. Just as We have. You see, there is a work of the Spirit in Acts 2, and in Acts 8, and in Acts 10. That's a just as we have sort of statement. It's central to the point of the Spirit's activity in all of these passages. The Holy Spirit is over and over again bearing irrefutable witness that just as there is one gospel and one hope of salvation, there is one people into which all the people who are believing are being redeemed. That is the the work of the Spirit and the testimony that is born for us in Acts by Luke, who is recording these eyewitness events for us. Acts 19. In Acts chapter 19, there's a group of disciples. These disciples are disciples of John the Baptist, And they'd heard John the Baptist call to repentance, and they had been baptized, probably in the River Jordan there, right? Under the ministry of John the Baptist. But they didn't seem to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus. There was either some confusion, or they had not heard. When Paul preaches the gospel, these disciples believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. They believe. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to all who were there, that this is not merely a repentance of sin by which they are saved, but through faith in Jesus and his gospel that a person is saved and brought into the household of God. It's not the, it's not the repentance that John led them in, but that John was pointing them toward in the work of Jesus Christ by which these disciples would ultimately be saved. The Spirit bears witness to that reality and his great work in the midst of those disciples on that day. Now, J.I. Packer summarizes these passages in this way. J.I. Packer says, Luke seems to have understood his four cases of what John J.I. Packer calls Pentecostal manifestations. That is, this works of the Spirit that seem to emulate what took place in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Luke seems to have understood these things as God's testimony to having accepted on equal footing in the new society four classes of folk who, whose co-equality might hereto otherwise have been doubted. Now, I said those words, and I had to think about them when I read them the first time, and I had to think about them when I read them the second time. So let's think about them again. Whose co-equality might have been doubted. Oh yeah, I hear that those Samaritans and those Gentiles and those disciples of John heard the gospel. I hear that they even responded in a variety of ways. I heard that they even wanted to be baptized in the name of Jesus. But surely they are not on equal footing with us. They might be like God-fearers and they can worship in the outer courts around the true faithful Israel. But surely they aren't, haven't received the Spirit of God like we have. Right? No. These four passages make it abundantly clear that there is a co-equality among the Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles and the disciples of John, and I'm wondering who is not included except for those who have not yet believed. Don't let our modern context of multiculturalism cause you to miss just how amazing and unprecedented that statement is a co-equality in one kingdom of all the peoples of the earth who have been redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's that's astounding. That is astonishing. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit has borne witness to us this morning in this record in Acts. The gospel of Jesus Christ is salvation for All who believe and the Spirit's work recorded for us in the Word tells us that this salvation brings a people who were once far off, near, inside, included, heirs of the kingdom. Now, having considered those four statements in Acts, and I would encourage you to continue to consider them, I want to go to the Apostle Paul's expression of baptism in one spirit. There is a passage that I think unlocks for us so much of what the Spirit is doing in Acts in just one statement. It's a statement in which Paul is reflecting upon the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Apostle Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You see, the emphasis here two times is upon all. All seems to be the emphasis that God is making, both here as well as in the works that are recorded in, by Luke in Acts. All, by creating a unique and explicit experience for each of these groups represented in these passages above in Acts, we see that all are brought into one body. Romans 6, 3-4, through he says it another way. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ we're baptized into his death. Now, I want to pause there because it's right. We actually read this quite often when we do baptism here at Cross Point Coast. But that, that baptism, friends, is when, when, we, when we put that, that person in the water and they, and they confess their faith and, and they're put under the water, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to newness of life, We do not believe that in that moment that that person is united with the death of Christ in that moment as if they were not previously. We don't believe that water actually does anything. But we do believe that that water is a symbol of something far more powerful, far more real. It is a sign and a seal of the work of the Holy Spirit that has already taken place in the life of that believer to do what's said in this passage, that you have been baptized into Christ Jesus and baptized into his death. You see, no amount of water can baptize somebody into the death of Jesus, cannot make them united with whatever it is that Jesus was doing in his cross, in his atoning work, in the forgiveness of sins. No amount of water can make that happen, but the Spirit can. He can exercise a judgment on our sin, which is what baptism in in fire so often in the Old Testament and the New is in reference to. The Holy Spirit can exercise a judgment on our sins by uniting us with the death of Christ so that Christ dies for us so that we might live with him. Galatians 3.27 puts it this way. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Friends, that's not a statement of of however many of you had water placed on you or put you under. That's a statement of baptism into participation with the Spirit, uniting the believer with the work of Christ in his death and resurrection. This is true. The fact that the Holy Spirit made himself so evident in the lives of the Jews, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and the disciples of Jesus tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. That is what we are to learn from Acts and these accounts. And it's picked up for us. It's a beautiful turn of phrase, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And it's a phrase that is given to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And he he said it in so many beautiful and different ways. Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you, do you get what's going on here? The Spirit of God in Acts is bearing witness so that Paul can say with confidence that sentence. All who have been incorporated into Christ belong Him, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You hear how the passage begins there is one body and one spirit. How do we know there's one body and not maybe three or four bodies? Divisions within the kingdom in that way one group of Jewish believers, another subgroup of Gentile believers, maybe some carnal Christians mixed in there somewhere. We know that because one spirit bore witness so boldly and publicly that all who are saved are saved by hearing and believing in one gospel and are therefore incorporated into one kingdom. This is what happened in those first days following the ascension of Jesus. And this is what's recorded for us in these scriptures, the authoritative word of God in Acts. So we might have the same confidence as the apostles That the Jews and the Gentiles and all people have become, through faith in Christ, one kingdom people. We are one together. This is the truth to which the Holy Spirit bears witness. This is the argument that I am trying to make. You see, I have not seen Jesus. Not with my eyes. But I have an authoritative eyewitness account of his work. And so I believe. And I have confidence. And I have not seen the Holy Spirit fall in tongues of fire and break into the streets of Jerusalem or break into a household like Cornelius and work in that way when apostles lay their hands on those men and women in that household. I haven't seen that. But I have recorded for me the eyewitness account in the inspired word of God, and so I am confident. And I believe that it is true for me and true for you that we have been incorporated into one body. Now there's a question that's just sort of sitting there. You're all asking it. Some of you have written it down and others of you are wondering, is he just going to skip over this question to avoid any controversy? The question is this, should we expect to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Should we expect to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? There is a simple and a complex answer to the question. The simple one comes in the form, again, of Jesus' own words. It's why I opened the passage, this message this morning with Jesus' words. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of spirit of the water and the spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. Or Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we are baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're made to drink of one spirit. Friends, all who are saved are and must be baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit to apply that gospel to our lives. yes. The answer is absolutely yes. We must be baptized with the Holy Spirit or we have no participation with Christ. No benefit from his death or resurrection. No union with him. These are fundamental fundamental doctrines of our faith. Now, in relatively recent history, the past 100 years or so, a tradition has emerged that is called Pentecostalism. This movement answers that question, must we be baptized with the Holy Spirit with a very strong and particular affirmative? And I want to allow Guy Duffield, who writes in his book, Foundations of Pentecostal Theology, to speak. The baptism with the Holy Ghost is a definite experience. Subsequent to salvation whereby the third person of the Godhead comes upon the believer to anoint and energize him for, and this is important, for special service. This experience is designated in the New Testament as the Spirit falling upon, coming upon, or being poured out upon the yielded believer in a sudden and supernatural manner. It's very well worded. It's very clear and definite. It's also a biblically phrased explanation of what is meant by Pentecostal theology. I want to come back to this in a moment. But for now, I want you to notice that Pentecostalism not only supposes that the events of Acts are what all believers of all times are to expect in their own lives, and in the midst of their churches, but that baptism with the Holy Spirit is a separate and distinct experience from repentance, faith, and Conversion. Now, repentance, faith, and conversion must be present, but baptism with the Holy Spirit is separate and distinct from what some call a second blessing. What is baptism with the Holy Spirit then for the Pentecostal? Well, it's kind of hard to answer because it's trying to say that all Pentecostals would say the answer to that question in the same way, and I don't want to paint that picture. But for now, let me generalize in this way that Baptism with the Holy Spirit is an anointing or energizing experience for the believer, setting him or her apart for special service. To put it another way, baptism is not primarily about believers' incorporation into Christ and his body, the church, but rather it's about the believer being set apart for ministry. Now, both of those things are beautiful, are they not? Both of those things are things that we see taking place in the scriptures, both of those things are excellent in what the believer ought to expect, that the Spirit would incorporate us into Christ and set us apart for ministry. But is this really baptism of the Holy Spirit, the way in which baptism is consistently spoken of in the Bible? Let's remember, first of all, this is very important for us. Let us remember, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. There's not some disunity in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Listen to Romans 8, 9. It is a key verse in our understanding of the nature of our God and his work in this world. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, he says, if in fact the Spirit of God... Do you hear that? The Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ. Do you hear that? We have the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God. And we have the Spirit of Christ all being spoken of. And we are told that we must belong to Him. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Christ. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in three persons. Now, with that understanding, we can read Romans 6.3. Roman, I would encourage you in your notes, put these three passages, that Romans eight nine down, and then these two right next to it, and spend some time in these passages and in their context. Romans 6.3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus... We're baptized into his death. Do you see the emphasis in this passage? I, I think at least in this one passage, the emphasis is not about being set apart for special service, but rather to be baptized into his death. A union with Christ in his death and resurrection is what is in view. Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See, it's what's in view What's the primary purpose of baptism into Christ, at least in these two passages? is Is it to be called into special service, or is it to truly share in the death and resurrection of Jesus, to be incorporated into Christ and made beneficiaries of his redemption? Is baptism primarily about calling into special service or union with Christ? When I consider the emphasis in Pentecostal theology upon a second experience of Holy Spirit and baptism that's quite set apart from one's initial faith in Christ and forgiveness of sin, I find that explanation to be lacking, even if you consider the spirit baptism that we find in Acts. Stay with me for a moment. While it's true, all right, Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the primary purpose of the Spirit's work there is to spur 120 disciples who are faithfully waiting upon the Lord, yielded to His Spirit. Great use of that word. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit takes those 120 people and sends them in faithful, supernatural witness to the gospel in the streets of Jerusalem. But in the other three examples in Acts, the primary purpose of the Spirit's work seems to be to mark this new group of believers in a visible, irrefutable way as saved by the same grace and belonging to the same church as the church of the Jews in Jerusalem. That seems to be the work of the Spirit, and it's worked, and it worked. It would be one thing for the apostles to baptize new believers with water. This would give some credibility to their conversion. But it's another thing entirely for the Holy Spirit himself to give a great and irrefutable supernatural sign that these believers belong to one family of God in the same way as those who first believed in Acts chapter 2. How do we know that this is the great emphasis of the other three passages in Acts? Consider what the church in Jerusalem got explicitly when they considered what took place in those three other experiences. In Acts chapter 15, news has come to Jerusalem about the salvation of the Gentiles by means of faith in the gospel. And the response among the Jews in Jerusalem is surely that that can't be, that can't be. Acts chapter 15, 7 through 9. And after there had been much debate, you can hear the debate. Really, what's going on among the Gentiles? I mean, they, they can't possibly be brought in by grace through faith into our fellowship, into this kingdom. There's much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by the mouth, my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And they're fine with that; they can believe all they want. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And key, He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. You hear that? The Holy Spirit made no distinction. How did Peter know for sure that God was making no distinction between Jew and Gentile? Because God bore witness that he had cleansed their hearts by faith in the gospel by giving them the Holy Spirit. If the Gentiles have the Holy Spirit, just like us, Peter says, then surely they've been redeemed into Christ's church, just like us. You see, that's what the apostles And the disciples in Jerusalem got from these three accounts of the baptism of the Holy Spirit among these three groups of people. Now consider, isn't that what the Holy Spirit does for every one of us? Bear witness to the reality of our salvation? And this is a major part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Is it not to serve as a guarantee and a witness to our faith? Let's go back to Romans again. Romans 8.16. The Spirit Himself bears witness that our, to, with our Spirit that we are children of God, and among God's children, there's no partiality. He doesn't play favorites, but we can say together by the Spirit's own witness to our hearts: God, our Father; Christ, our brother. Just to kind of wrap things up a bit. It's my understanding of Acts within the context of the whole of the New Testament teaching on the Spirit's work in the life of the believer that these four passages in Acts 2, 8, 10, 19, that they are there to give the Christ church confidence for all time that all who have been believed have been baptized into one faith. That we have been made to benefit from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we who have believed have become one body, the church of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need not expect these extraordinary visible signs would accompany every individual's faith. Because the scriptures have told us clearly, and we ought to believe them, that this is so. Nor should we expect or demand any such extraordinary signs to come at a later time to mark out the believer in any special way for ministry or service. We can have confidence that we belong to one body, not because we experience some extra second blessing, but because we trust the word. It's the testimony of the word, the eyewitness testimony that we find there in Christ and by his spirit, we are made one body. Now, having said that, I realize that not all believers agree with that stand, with that understanding of the book of Acts. It's clear that Cross Point Coast doesn't align quite well with Pentecostal theology. But I also want to be clear about this that we don't want to disparage Pentecostal brothers and sisters. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. Is it true? among all who have believed, of all who have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Is this true? For by one spirit, about whose work we sometimes disagree, we are together one body, one church, saved by one grace through one faith. Certainly there are those in Pentecostalism that press their understanding of the Holy Spirit, what we would say, too far. There are those who claim that one must speak in tongues or manifest other extraordinary phenomenon in order to be saved. By such claim, we believe that they are adding to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And we would say that is Error and something to be cautioned against. We deny such claim, but this is not the position of all who hold to Pentecostal understanding of the work of the Spirit. There's a variety of understandings there, and we ought to listen to one another and perhaps learn a thing or two, worship with one another, and glorify God together. I want to suggest that we ought to strive for elements of shared understanding with Pentecostal brothers and sisters. In fact, I would suggest that much of That Pentecostalism calls baptism with the Holy Spirit is actually a mixing together of baptism with the Spirit and what we would call being filled with the Spirit. At times, in the Scriptures, what is called being filled with the Spirit is clearly to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And at other times, what is called being filled with the Spirit is being commissioned and encouraged and set apart for special service. In Ephesians 5.18, it suggests that we ought at all times to seek to be filled with the Spirit. It says Paul and Apollos were full of the Spirit, that they're sent on their first missionary journey. It says many believers from Zechariah and Micah and Paul and Joshua and Moses. And Jesus himself is filled with the Spirit of God, that they boldly proclaim the gospel of God and the glory of God. Jesus said that he and his Father were sending the Holy Spirit so that we might be witnesses. And so we say, come, Holy Spirit. Make of us a greater, bolder, clearer, effective witness. Fill us in this way. Brothers and sisters, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And more so every day. May the Lord use His word to capture our hearts and our minds so that the Spirit of Christ is our everything. He is our life and our very connection to the vine. And at the same time, we understand that to be baptized with the Holy Spirit is a singular work of the Spirit of God for the believer to unite him to the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is with us. Through the book of Acts, when we see a person or group of people saved, we consistently see a few things at work. We see the word preached. We see a people receive that word with eagerness We see a people responding to the word of the gospel with faith and belief. We see a people receiving baptism with water as a sign of incorporation into Christ. We see a people who are changed by the work of the Spirit in their lives. Brothers and sisters, it is by the Holy Spirit that we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Our only hope is that by grace through faith, the Holy Spirit has sealed us with this salvation. As I've said, I... I do not believe we ought to expect or demand that the Spirit work in the same way that he did in these particular four passages in Acts. But he's already established a clear and authoritative eyewitness account, seen to it that Luke would record that account for us in his inspired words, so we ought to have the same confidence as those who were there. But that does not mean that the Holy Spirit does not give the believer evidence of his presence and work in our lives. Today, this morning, in the lives of the redeemed, John Piper asked this question. And I ask you today as we close. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? You should be able to answer this question And if you are saved, see the evidence that it is so. Not just by way of theological wrangling, but evidence that it is so. Piper gives a few examples. Yes, I have seen the spirit of obedience at work in my life, subduing sin and inclining me to acts of love. I love sin. I live close to many of you. I know you love sin. It is not in my nature to deny it. But when I do, I know the spirit of God is evidently working in the life of this man. You see, I've seen the spirit of praise in my life, filling my heart and my mouth with worship to Jesus and God the Father. You see, I'm a lover of this world, and I'm a lover of money, and I'm a lover of self. And if I ever express praise and love to God, our Father, that is the work of his spirit in the life of this man. You see, I've seen the spirit of courage at work in my life, overcoming fear. Some of you have a disposition toward fear and timidity. And yet you've shared the gospel and you've opened your home. Some of you have literally opened your home to strangers. Friends, that is a testimony not just to you, that's a testimony to this pastor that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in the life of his church. I would add a few things. Yes, I've seen the Spirit bringing me deeper and deeper understanding of the gospel of grace. Grace. Yes, I've seen the Spirit granting me spiritual wisdom and insight for the benefit of my family and my community around me. Yes, I've seen the Spirit giving me a love for His Word and a desire for others to be filled with that love. To put it another way, I have been given the Holy Spirit. If we have been given the Holy Spirit when we were born again, we know that He is not given with no effect. We ought to expect the Holy Spirit to change us. And we ought to see that change evident. And we ought to know that we are being filled with that Spirit and transformed. And so I call you this morning to believe the gospel. For some, that you would repent of your sin, that you would believe that because Jesus died on the cross, you are forgiven of sin, to confess Jesus as Lord and be sure that the Holy Spirit will fill you with all grace that you and I and this church may be one together by grace through faith. I call you to that this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit would work that in you this morning. And for others, I call you to seek the things that are of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 4.12 says, So with you yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Are you eager for manifestations of the Spirit? Are you eager for the Spirit to show the power of His work? Strive to excel in building up the church. Do you want to see something truly miraculous? What is truly extraordinary? What is truly unique and spiritual? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we would see the fruit in our midst, then we can be assured that in one spirit we are all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all at Cross Point Coast were made to drink of one spirit with the church of all times and places. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the confidence that we can have in your word. We thank you for the way that you have arranged it and for giving us a desire here to know it. Lord, I pray that you would, in that desire, and in that desire to be clear and to understand, that you would guard us against arrogance and pride, but that we would be humbled before this Christ, and that your Spirit would work that beautiful fruit in us of humility, and give us as a people joy. Lord, we pray that in the midst of what is often controversial, that you would, cause there to, be, to grow up a unity in the faith. Lord, let us be patient with one another. Even this morning, let us be patient and let us worship together. Our next moment is to remember the ground of the gospel in the body and blood of Christ. And immediately following that is an opportunity for the people of God to praise. Spirit, we ask that you would compel our praise, and fill our praise so that we know there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.